Quarter to three games podcast for the week of June, June something, June twenty, early twenties, early twenties, yeah. June, thereabouts. Something like that. Uh, yeah, something like that. I'm close enough. Uh, close enough for government work. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Civilization Five: Gods and Kings. And I'm Jason McMaster, and my game of the week is not. Uh, I'm going to say Aliens vs. Predator. I'm Charles Wheeler, and my game of the week is not El Shaddai Ascension of the Metatron. I don't think anybody's game of the week was ever. I completed it, and I have the uh, I have the achievements to prove it. So, what, what was that experience like, Charles Wheeler? <laughs> um, it was colorful. <laughs> I see the makings of a diplomat here. Uh, Charles Wheeler, we have you on this week because, uh, A, we like you, but B, you just did, you just concluded for us a really nice game diary uh, about Marvel vs. Capcom 3, which uh, when, you, when you suggested doing it, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be some guy who's like really hardcore into it, and I'm not going to know anything about what he's saying. Uh, but as a completely casual fighting game fan, I always love it when guys like you, who are far above and beyond my skill level, can sort of talk layman's terms. So often, serious, hardcore fighting game people cannot talk to normal people. Uh, so, Well, I actually, yeah. I actually, when I was writing it, um, I kept something in mind that, uh, I, I forget where, but I read in a science book at some point that if you're writing popular science, uh, every equation that you put into the book decreases the sales by 10%. <laughs> so I figured I, I could apply that to, to writing about games, and that, you know, anytime I put a combo or, a, or jargon in, I'd probably lose about 10% of my readers. Uh, so I figured that, you know, I can just use it as a guideline to keep it keep it accessible. Well, I well played, and I thought you did a great job of sort of bridging that often unbridged world between serious fighting game fans and folks like me. Uh, so I, I especially liked your last entry, which I uh, just posted today. It's probably right below the uh, entry for this podcast, uh, where you talked about the sort of the sportsmanship, even though you didn't delve too deeply into it because it's been something that's been on folks' minds since the incident at the Capcom since their incident with the, the woman who was playing there, uh, you just had a great little button at the end of your series that ended with that little compliment you got, uh, which was, uh, can, can you do a rendition of what was said to you at the end of that uh, match? Um, yeah, so uh, the, to the best that I can reproduce it is basically, you good, man, you good. <laughs> which you know I, I feel like it's yeah i feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of camaraderie there when when you can get the right the right crowd and um, and anybody who would go to the effort too to actually sit down after a match and then find the guy in the recently played list and hit record and, and send you a little message uh, i just thought that was very touching that was a great example of you know when online multiplayer gaming is actually worth it. Like when you get a little human touch like that, and it just feels great, and it's not some jerk, and it's not just faceless players. It's it's someone sort of reaching out and basically doing the equivalent of shaking your hand after a match. Uh, yeah. So I really like that. 
Now, uh, you did, however, dodge a very important question, Charles Wheeler. What are your favorite characters in Marvel vs. Capcom 3? You do, um, you do these eight great entries, and not once did I hear you basically saying, when I play, these are the three dudes I want. Yeah, so um, I'm actually, I, I'm a little terrible at that, so the reason I'm not very good at the game. I don't think about my roster in terms of, of who supports who or anything like that. Um, usually my, my go-to team is usually uh, Trish and She-Hulk, who actually did entries on. Um, and then the third one I round out usually is Captain America. Uh, just because he's sort of a, a good, solid heavy hitter that that I can I can get some good mileage out of. Now, is this true? Is Captain America uh, basically like playing the humans in an RTS? Like he's just the basic, straight up, no frills move set. He's just sort of a, a vanilla template to just get people used to Marvel vs. Capcom. Like, is that? Am I right in saying he's, um, he's, sort of he's the pretty reaper? close? I mean, Ryu is is I really Ryu, the. Yeah is the blank, you know, the really blank slate entry. Um, Captain America, he's got a couple of a couple of little nuances. He's got a, um, a cartwheel that can get him behind enemies that's a little a little tricky. Oh, yeah, that is, yeah, yeah. Um, what, isn't that called something like Star Spangled? Or, or I might even, for, for a minute I thought I knew the name of that move, but I don't. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to assume it's just called the cartwheel. Um, <laughs> the length but, tango. Yes, the, yeah, the Wingo Tango. So I'm putting you down for Trish, Captain America. Who was the third one, you said? Uh, She-Hulk. She-Hulk. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, um, all right, so McMaster, Charles Wheeler is coming at you with Trish, Captain America, She-Hulk. How do you respond? What three characters in Marvel vs. Capcom or Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom, what three characters are you going to respond with, Jason T. McMaster? Well, I'm kind of boring because I always pick Ryu. Okay. Uh, because I play a lot of Ryu and Street Fighter. Um, and uh, then after that, it kind of depends. Like, I, I don't really... God, what's the dude's name? Is it like the Swordmaster, the trainer dude? Uh, Taskmaster. Yeah. Taskmaster. He's pretty good. Uh, I, I like him. And uh, also, uh, you know, I play with Deadpool a lot because he amuses me. But I mean, For the comic value, yes, absolutely. Good. Sure. Yeah, because I, I, I don't know. I've played a lot of Street Fighter and stuff. I'm just not as big into the Marvel vs. Capcom. All right, so let's see. I have Trish, Captain America, and She-Hulk going up against Ryu, Taskmaster, and Deadpool, and I'm going sure, to call. I'm calling the match for Charles Wheeler. Probably. <laughs> I, I played pretty mean Ryu though. <laughs> Uh, I think I'll, Charles. I'll take a win when I can get it. So. Yeah. Uh, now here's here's if I were playing against either of you, I want I want to ask you if this trick would work because when I am showing my friends Marvel vs. Capcom three, uh, invariably this trick works. I, I tend to use it. I pick. I have on my team Thor, and I pretend that I've chosen Thor because I recently saw the movie, which is true. I did see the movie when it came out, but I pretend that I'm picking Thor. <laughs> because I want to show them how Thor talks in the comic books versus how he talked in the movies. You know, in the comic books, he has all this flowery speech, where in the movies, he just talked like Chris Hemsworth. Uh, so what I do is I pick Thor as my main guy, and I'm like, hold on, before we start, I just want to show you something. Here's how Thor talks in the comic book, and I do that little down-down heavy, 
where Thor starts orating and he's just talking and he's saying crazy lines about stuff. You're a you're a total dick. Why? Why? Maybe it's a legitimate <laughs> question, McMaster. Maybe I really want to bring up this issue because they sit and they listen for a minute and they're listening to it. And I'm going, is that how Thor should really talk? And they're listening, and they're like, I don't know. Uh, so it's just it's an innocent question, right? Sure. <laughs> did you get did you get dingus with this? I've gotten many of my friends. I've gotten Christian Morosky. I've gotten, yeah. So what, what they don't realize if they're not paying attention is that it's building up the super meter. Uh, yeah, yeah. And probably when you're playing against real people like Charles or like you, McMaster, they would not, uh, they would not ever, I'm guessing, let you get away with just sitting there building up your boost juice, right? Like that probably See, I mean, that's actually, that's one of the, uh, the great things about online is that when you've find the right people mm-hmm. um you can especially you know if, if the match is, is pretty clearly going one way uh you can find people who will just let you sit there and and talk at them or or taunt or uh, or, or whatever you know it's there's definitely there's a contingent online and and just in general who is just playing for fun and and even if they're going to lose if they're going to can go down taunting or, or making a big show of it you know they don't mind so so you know charles i think that's one of the advantages of uh, specifically the shorter matches that you get in a fighting game, because I don't think anyone is ever going to do that in a game like League of Legends where you're basically committing to 40 minutes online for a match. Uh, that's one of the advantages hey, of just quick, short... Minion, 15 minutes. You can do 15 minutes. <laughs> Come on. Uh, okay, so do you find a lot of people just hanging back doing the dance animations in Dominions, doing <laughs> dance-offs? <laughs> Well, no, those people are called assholes. <laughs> You're on a team, so, yeah. So, McMaster, I just want you to listen to how Thor talks. I'm just going to have you listen to this real quick. I, I'm just curious if you think this is authentic, if it's realistic. Uh, so, Charles, you, uh, you you have a lot of experience with fighting games. You're uh, obviously one of those guys, even though you're pretty self-deprecating in the game diaries, I could read between the lines, and I could tell... You would you would totally kick my ass. Uh, you were at that level that I will never reach. Even though your first entry, I was like, oh, I can totally understand this guy. He's having a hard time with a specific uh, move. Uh, you grew up with these, right? Like this was a part of your childhood. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've definitely played more than I am good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I actually grew up uh, in Asia in Singapore, um, and we had. Uh, you know, gr- growing up as a as sort of a nerdy kid in in a Southeast Asian city, there, there's actually still a thriving arcade culture there, or at least there was the last time I went. Um, now, so go ahead. So I managed to sort of cut my teeth a little bit, actually, in arcades and playing, uh, you know, a lot of those sort of maybe the way they're meant to be played, if, if you will. Now you mentioned that you moved here for college, so I don't know what sort of frame of reference you have, but do you have any idea like how the fighting game scene might have been different for you in Singapore than it might have been for those of us who grew up in the states? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. You know, I never really experienced it in in the U.S. I understand at least on the on the West Coast, there you know there are actual arcades and there are people or form little. Uh, little clicks and things and whatnot, and people get reputations in arcades. And I've heard stories about that, but I've never experienced it for myself. Did you ever get in a real fight at an arcade? No. We we went we went to the uh, the most dangerous arcade in Singapore. <laughs> that sounds awesome, by the way. Which it sounds yeah. Go ahead. What's that like? So so it, it starts out really good because it was this sort of scuzzy little thing it was actually. Um, to get to it, it was in the basement of a sort of a mall, 
um, and you had to go in through the parking lot. So it got a really good setting. Um, but the most dangerous arcade in Singapore means that in the attached pool hall, there's been a fight like two or three times. It's, it's not really uh, n- not that much to, uh, to talk about. So the danger is strictly a function of its proximity to another in, in, uh, uh, establishment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Singapore is a pretty pretty well-ordered city, so uh, there wasn't a lot, of, a lot of brawls in the arcades. But. Now, if you don't mind my asking, how is it that you grew up in Singapore? Are you from there? Did you have, like, a military father? What, what happened that you grew up in Singapore? No, no, we, uh, I was born in the U.S., lived here for most of my childhood, and then uh, we went over. My dad was in finance, and Singapore was in the middle of a, of a big economic boom. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just just before the. Uh, this is during the Asian economic miracle, just before the Asian economic crisis, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and so we went over there for three years, which is pretty standard for an expat. We went over for three years and, and ended up staying uh, about twelve. So um, my I, I came back after about eight years to go to college, and my parents stayed on for several years after that. Do you miss it at all? What what uh, what do you what was it like growing up in Singapore? Uh, the one thing that everyone will tell you, and anyone who's ever lived in Singapore, is the food. There's just, there's no comparison. Um, probably the two best cities for food in the world are Singapore and Hong Kong, mm-hmm. uh, in, you know, in my opinion. Um, and it's just, it, there's just things that, you know, the, the, the food that you get on the street at, at your local hawker center, um, sort of food court... Uh, or anything like that. It just there's no comparison anywhere in the world. Now, are you in? Are you now? You're in New York, like New York City, or somewhere upstate? Where Where do you live these days? Yep, I'm in the city. I'm actually in Manhattan. So I I would say like that probably means you're pretty picky about food, right? Like, like aren't people in New York? Uh, you probably have access to great restaurants right now. So you saying that the food was great in Singapore has got to be high praise. Yeah, I you know maybe maybe I should qualify it. Uh, there's definitely foods that you can't get in Singapore. Um, any kind of Mexican food, a lot of even sort of <laughs> French or Italian. Um, but in terms of Asian food, it's definitely you know without without equal. Right, right. Uh, so you live in New York City now. Uh, you are, I'm guessing, a gaming nerd like me and McMaster, correct? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. And you're aware that you are going to be called out for a game of the week later on this podcast, uh, and it, I'm presuming it, it can't be Marvel vs. Capcom 3, because we've already talked about that. So, are you ready yeah, for I, us? I, yeah, I got something in my pocket. All right, good. But first, let's talk about news of the week. We just got over E3. Um, don't know if anything's happening. I'll be curious what you guys have come up with. McMaster, why don't you start us out with a news story of the week? Alrighty. Well, uh, as you know, uh, THQ has had its troubles recently, uh, but they've replaced their CEO, uh, or I believe it's CEO, uh, with, uh, or, oh no, president, sorry, uh, with uh, Naughty Dog's co-founder, Jason Rubin. And uh, one thing that he came out and said recently is that there will no, be no Saints Row expansion. Uh, so that was kind of a big thing, and it has lowered THQ's expected revenue by $20 million. Well, no, he didn't say there, there will be uh, – it's not like it was killed. They're just coming no. up with a new plan for how to release it, right? Right, right. It's not going to be an expansion. It's going to be like a full title uh, released in 2013. 
And so that was uh, Enter the Dominatrix, I believe it was called. And uh, this was one of the scheduled DLC episodes for Saints Row 3. And uh, whatever work they've been doing on it is just being shunted over to a full-blown uh, new title. How do you feel about that, McMaster? Uh, you know, I'm actually kind of okay with that. Uh, I think Jason Rubin has done, or at least he has some interesting ideas. Uh, I'm not sure how they'll turn out for THQ, but it has to be better than what they've doing so, been doing so far. So, I mean, and have they you just seen- seem to have, like, a ton of great properties, and then they just, like, don't really... I, I don't know. It, it, it's something. There's something with that company. I mean, I, I don't think Sancho gets the respect it deserves. Uh, I don't think that... I mean, I you know, um, uh, Red Faction Guerrilla. You know, uh, why couldn't you follow that game up with, with something similar instead of I don't know what they ended up with and then getting you know canceled. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it, Jason Rubin would have to do better, I would hope. And if I mean, it, it seems like a better idea because wasn't the standalone expansion going to be like pretty expensive? Uh, uh, if I remember correctly, like twenty or thirty bucks, something like that. For Enter the Dominatrix. Yeah. Oh, I don't wasn't, know. Wasn't there some kind of season pass for DLC for Saints Row? Is that there definitely was? Affected? And uh, the I don't know if Enter yeah, the Dominatrix. Yeah. Was... Go ahead, McMaster. No, yeah, no, I think yeah, I think that's kind of a big deal. Actually, I wonder. Uh, there, yeah, the seasons pass included. Uh, I don't remember the names of them, but there was one where you're uh, you have missions where they're shooting a movie, and then there was another one uh, that was a science fiction one. But yeah, there were definitely a couple of episodes of DLC that were part of a seasons pass, and I don't know if Enter the Dominatrix was part of that. Uh, but I would imagine there would be much more of an uproar if people who were expecting this to be part of their seasons pass had it taken away from them and put into the next game. So I'm guessing you know, that didn't happen. I, I'm kind of what I yeah I think honestly that this was not part of the season pass which was also kind of ludicrous that they sold the season pass in the first place uh, so I, I think this was a standalone expansion that was going to be like twenty or thirty bucks something like that uh, and then they yeah they just decided to put it into the next game which makes me think there is some kind of a shuffle going on with the release plan well there is some kind of shuffle going on with the release plans for Saints Row uh, as a series and I'm guessing that they're just going to use the the engine and maybe even the same city I mean it may it almost sounds like rather than doing a Saints Row 4 with a new city they're just going to give a steel port again with new content in it uh, like which I, I you know I loved what you could do with Saints Row 3 I loved the engine I loved the game um, but part of me bristles at that. I, I sort of feel like maybe more ambitious plans have been either cut back or canceled, or I don't know what's going on internally. But I feel a little manipulated. I'm not. I'm not real happy well, with. That. Well, isn't isn't that what always happens when you end up with an annual franchise that they have to, yeah, yeah. you know, release on a on a schedule? Well, you know, I'll tell you too. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about a new Xbox and all that jazz lately. So I wonder if not. By end of 2013, you know, they could maybe make it a next-gen game or something. Who knows? But, Charles, you're definitely right, though, in that I feel that, you know, what we've seen happening with Assassin's Creed, which is just awful, I think. I mean, Assassin's Creed is a worst-case example of what happens when you put when you expect a franchise to be part of your annual release, you know, and, and especially a really cool, ambitious, open-world game. Uh, I, I feel like it just holds back what you can do, and you, you end up getting these 
iterative releases. And the last couple of Assassin's Creeds have just been really disappointing. So I hate to think of that happening with Saints Row. I liked Brotherhood uh, well enough. Uh, the multiplayer was pretty interesting. But, um, yeah, no, I, I agree. The, the last one just didn't really, uh, I don't know, just didn't get me. Uh, all right, so uh, that's going on at THQ. Um, Jason McMaster's News of the Week. I will go next. So uh, this is not as high a profile game as Saints Row 3. It's one that uh, we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, but a new update came out. Actually, there have been a couple of new updates this week. Uh, a big one came out for Age of Empires Online, which oh, yeah. introduced a new economy for it. It revised the way they they are basically selling content. You can, you can sort of grind away to earn points to buy content. A whole bunch of fun new vanity things, which I really like the way they've done that. Uh, huge rebalance stuff. But basically, Age of Empires Online... It's whole reimagining. Finally, the last step was folded in, folded in this past week. So that's that received a huge update. But the one that really grabbed me is an update for a really weird action RPG platformer called A Valley Without Wind. Uh, the 1.1 update for A Valley Without Wind completely sort of reimagined how the game plays. Like, it completely revised the the balance, the difficulty level, uh, even the whole feel of it as an RPG. Previously, there was a lot of what you could call grinding, but I like to think of as very focused goals where you weren't exactly sure, where you just had to explore a lot to realize them. Uh, so, for instance, what would happen would be you the the world in order to make any progress in the world you would need to upgrade your spells but you wouldn't know exactly where to get the upgrade materials so you'd have to do a lot of searching uh you could do missions but they did a weird thing where as you did missions it made the game as a whole harder so there was this odd almost disincentive to do focus to do missions for specific items because you were making the game more difficult for yourself. And in fact, the first time I played, I, I got in a point where I felt like I was a dead end. Like I couldn't do any of the missions because I had made the, the world too difficult and I was having trouble exploring for the things I needed because the world was more difficult and it was a little frustrating because I could never be assured that I was going to get what I wanted uh, while I explored. However, the hardcore part of me, the, the part of me who really likes a challenge in games, I, I kind of felt like, well, this is my failing. You know, I, I, I made the game too hard. It's my own fault. This is the way they want to make the game, so that's fine. And then I just stopped playing and, and never went back to it. Uh, so one of the things that they've changed is this whole way that as you did missions, it would make the world harder. That is now completely gone. Now you can do missions to your heart's content. If you need, say, uh, a ruby... To upgrade your fire spells, you can look at, you can just keep playing missions. You can do whatever missions you want. You can do the fun ones, and you can keep going until you see a mission that gives you a ruby. You do that mission, you got your ruby easy enough. You don't have to explore caves and hope that you're going to find a ruby in the ruby-oriented territories, which is how it used to be. Uh, so they did this change. I started a new game, and the part of me that was like hardcore, that was like, yeah, I should grind, it should be difficult, it should challenge me. I don't feel that at all. Like now, it's a much more relaxed, forgiving kind of experience, uh, and I really dig the changes they made. And it reminds me of how I felt about Diablo 3. When Diablo 3, when the beta came out, 
and it let you take all of the skills. You know, as you leveled up, you were getting all the skills for free. And my response was, I don't want this. I want to have to make mutually exclusive choices. You know, I want to pick my skill when I level up and not get the other skill. You know, if I get diamond skin for my wizard, I shouldn't get the special electric bolts. It should be blah, blah, blah. You know, games are interesting choices, and it's not interesting if I just get everything. So I was, like, all about, no, I don't like Diablo 3. I'm a Diablo 2 guy. And then Diablo 3 came out, and I really like that new approach. Uh, I like this this idea of me being given everything and then getting to choose what I want to play with. And so I feel like that's what's similar to what happened with Valley Without Wind. So I don't know if I'm changing or if game design is changing, but, but this new approach to, to be more generous, more forgiving, not as difficult, not as hardcore, I find myself softening to this. Uh, and Valley Without Wind is a perfect example of that. Uh, so that's my news of the week, the 1.1 update for Valley Without Wind. Uh, it, it changes the way the difficulty scales. It lets you, you know, you can go to a shop and you can actually buy stuff now. It used to be monsters would just got in your way. Now when you kill them, they actually have drops. They drop loot, you, or they drop money. You can go to a shop, you can spend that money to buy things you used to have to grind for. Uh, the new characters uh, have unique attributes. Like when you pick a character, it's not just a certain amount of hit points and mana. They'll have special bonuses and, and stuff. Uh, so I really like where Valley Without Wind has ended up. Uh, and that's my news of the week. All right. All right, so Charles Wheeler, that leaves you. What What is the most newsworthy thing in the wake of E3 uh, that, that's come to your attention? Um, so I guess I guess someone has to talk about it. Um, oh, you sound you sound reluctant. Well, so so there's a couple of things that are that are pretty related. Um, the the main one that probably I, I can point to is the uh, tropes versus women in video games Kickstarter, um, which is a uh, Kickstarter project by a woman named Anita Sarkeesian, um, who wanted oh, yeah. to. Do a, a, a series of videos uh, exploring different tropes that you know the way women are represented in in gaming. Um, and she, as as a result of this, she got she somehow became the target of some rather unsavory uh, gamer types and uh, endured quite a bit of abuse. Uh, there's a lot of uh, nasty emails and and uh, vandalism on her Wikipedia page. Um, and, and things like that. Um, fortunately, the upshot of which is that her, you know, that that sort of publicity got her a huge number of backers, and she ended up uh, raising over one hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars to develop her um, her project. Do you know what her initial goal was? Uh, her initial goal was six thousand. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> so um, yeah, so you know, it's uh, it, it sort of I guess establishes that that there's a fair number of of pretty uh, well-minded people out there who are actually supporting this kind of exploration of, of um, you know, gender representation. And what is it that she's making a series of videos, you said, Charles? Yeah, so it's a Kickstarter just to do a series of videos. It, I think there's, uh, there's maybe 12 videos now um, with the expanded money that she's getting. Uh, where each one will sort of explore a particular trope, a particular representation of women um, in games. They have they have names like sexy villainous, damsel in distress, man yes. boobs, oh. uh, <laughs> unattractive equals evil. So um, you know, so there, there's a number of uh, just sort of 
concepts and, and ways that, that women are represented. And have you, are any of these live yet? No. So I think she's just, Kickstarter just ended a few, um, a few days ago. So she's working on, on starting to develop them now. So it sounds like an instance um, where, it, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, and so, I mean, this, this sort of, this sort of dovetails a little bit with, with the really the big, um, the big elephant in the room after E3, which was uh, Lara Croft's representation um, in in the, the videos that uh, that Ubisoft released, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the charges of, of kind of uh, sexism and and sort of rape fetishism and things like that 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 was seen there. So why don't you unpack that for us a little bit, Charles? Like I, I've watched the video. I don't I don't know a lot about the specific controversy, uh, but what are the objections and how do you feel about them? Um, it, I mean it's it's you know it's a lot to unpack. Basically, um, one of the big the big videos that Ubisoft showed at E3 uh, in a couple of different press conferences uh, was footage from the new Tomb Raider game, mm-hmm. um, and this is it's, it's been credited as a sort of a more gritty, realistic take on Tomb Raider, you know, maybe a, a Tomb Raider Batman Begins kind of thing. Um, and one of the things that it portrays is is Lara actually uh, getting getting into a plane crash and getting sort of, you know, really beat up and, and getting captured by some kind of mercenaries. And there's this sort of implicit rape threat that, that occurs. Um, it's, it's been sort of summarized by some... Sp- commentators as as a quick time event where you press X to not get raped um, so uh, you know so so that kind of kicked off a, a lot of controversy just because Lara Croft is is traditionally associated with a, a very empowered female figure who's um, you know who who wouldn't wouldn't really be subject to that in her previous iterations and and also the fact that you know any kind of male character who's in a similar or origin story situation isn't going to encounter the, the same kind of uh, the same kind of threats or the same kind of uh, sexual violence that we, we would see with uh, with a female character. Now I feel the need to sort of point out uh, because what little I have followed about this, uh, they uh, uh, Crystal Dynamics uh, has explicitly denied there's any such thing in the game. Uh, the, and, and I don't. It, it's entirely possible if you wanted to be cynical to say, well, they're only saying that because of the backlash. Uh, but from my cursory look at the issue, and I, again, I don't, I don't claim to have any insight, and I've only seen a few things about this. What it seems to me happened, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, Charles, is that someone was talking to Kotaku and basically was showing them this video and said, Laura Croft is in danger. You know, these guys are going to rape her, and she's going to get out of it. One guy said that to Kotaku. Kotaku wrote this, being what Kotaku is, they sort of raised that to the point of the lead. You know, they, they highlighted that comment, uh, and it from there the issue blew up. Uh, and afterwards, Crystal Dynamics and, uh, is it not 2K, um, Square Enix, emphatically denied that there was any sort of rape threat. And looking at the video, there are certainly creepy bad guys, but I don't, See, I, I see leering, but I don't see any implication of rape. Um, I, I, so am I, I missing saying, out on something? Go ahead. Oh, I was saying Ubisoft. Is that that's 
Is that right? No, it's Ubisoft, Square I'm pretty sure it's Square Enix. The, the developer's Crystal Dynamics, uh, I believe, and I think the publisher's Square Enix. I, I could be wrong about that, though. I don't think it's Ubisoft, though. Uh, that's a, uh, off the top of my head, I don't I, I okay. don't want to be, be discrediting the wrong, uh, the wrong company. Uh, McMaster, look um, up who we should be discrediting. But but so so do you think that I'm, I'm being a little it's, unfair? It's with Crystal you? Dynamics, so it's Square Enix, yeah. Okay. Okay, right. So I just, yeah, sorry about that. No, that, um, no big deal. But, but more to the point, like, do you, do you think I'm being a little dismissive? Like, should I be taking right, so, this more seriously? Oh, I, I think that the comment that um, that really sort of kicked a lot of this off was uh, there's a description of, of Lara Croft as a wounded animal or something like that. Um, right. You know, sort of breaking her down so that she can build herself back up. Um, and I think that, you know, this is and, and this is one of those things that bears that bears discussion because I think there is a lot of – there is an extent to which – um, you know, maybe this there's an overreaction to, in this case. Um, maybe it's, it's it was something that was taken out of context, uh, or or you know garnered reaction and started to snowball. Um, but regardless, I think you know as we've seen sort of in in the fighting game community recently and and with the the Kickstarter, uh, it's definitely a, a pervasive problem. You know that the way that the gaming community interacts with uh, with gender and and with female players and characters uh, is definitely something that uh, probably needs more exploration. Um, and, and that's why things like, like that Kickstarter are probably a good, a healthy way to address it. Right. Let, let me ask you this, Charles. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to call you out or be confrontational, but I would just be curious how you would respond to this. Uh, what would you think of, of someone defending this approach that Crystal Dynamics might have taken? You know, let's say that there was the implication of rape there uh, by saying... Well, rape is a as the fear of rape is a unique part of a woman's experience that a man can't appreciate, and rather than avoid it or gloss over it, it might be worth exploring in in video games. Uh, d- does that sound to you like a, a weak sort of rationale? Uh, do you think there's any merit to that? Um, I, I think that I think there's there's a few things going on that I personally would disagree with. Um, okay. The first thing is that is that the, the subject of rape is just so so loaded, um, and and is particularly for people who have um, been victims of it. That it, it's one of those things where you definitely need to think very hard about it before you include it. Okay. Um, I think that as a writer, uh, if you're going to include it, there should be a very good reason, and it should be something that maybe you can't achieve with anything else. Um, so I, I think there, there's an aspect of it where people feel that Ubisoft is using it kind of lazily. It's, it's an uh, easy Enix, way... Uh, just to say, or, sorry, Square Enix. Uh, as, but, but where the developers are using it very lazily. They're, right. um, they're just sort of putting it in there as, a, as an automatic uh, you know, villainization technique and... And that they're also at the same time appealing to this sort of prurian interest in the in the male um, in the male demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, I, I just I have I have a lot of um, questions sort of from a writing perspective as is whether that would really be the right way to approach it. Okay, sure, fair enough. Um, uh, did uh, I, I do like? Um, did you see the Avengers? I did. So it's it's uh, it's nowhere near like what they showed in the the trailer for the Laura Croft game. But I can't help but think of the introduction of Scarlett Johansson's character, who I think is 
Black Widow? Did I just make that up? That sounds goofy. No, that's right. Yeah, Black Widow, where she's like tied up and being interrogated, and how it's oddly icky, but how quickly she turns the tables, and how they really play with the idea that even though she's in this supposedly submissive position, she's in complete control of the situation. Uh, and they didn't play with that with her character later on in the movie. Uh, so I really appreciated what Joss Whedon and Zach Penn did with the Avengers script with this idea of here's a woman in a helpless, subjugated position, and she's using that for her benefit. Uh, I think the other thing that um, – the other comment that I've actually seen a, a comparison to this, mm-hmm. um, to that scene specifically, is that uh, although you know Scarlett Johansson is, is clearly a sexy woman and, and – um, and she's dressed, you know, very nicely. There isn't really a, set, a threat of sexual violence in that scene. Sure. Um, there's a threat of regular violence. There's, he, he has a hammer or pliers or something. You get the sense that he's going to, to you know, basically torture her. But you, you actually never get the impression that he's going to do anything to her sexually. Right. Um, you know, someone pointed out that he even, there's he has a line, something along the lines of, uh, you know, I... I wish that this night would have turned out better or something like that. Uh, this isn't the way that I wanted the night to end. Um, so it, it's, it's, I, I don't think there's, I, I think that, you know, particularly with Joss Whedon, who's well known for his, the way he handles female characters, I think there was definitely a cognizance yeah. of that. Yeah, um, yeah he's very feminist, uh, uh, happy, or pro-feminist. Uh, I'm guessing neither of you saw a, a terrible movie called Act of War? No. Okay, there's uh, one of the many things that makes it terrible is it begins with a female CIA operative being captured, and they do really, really grim stuff to villainize the bad guys by showing them torturing the the female. You know, she eventually gets rescued by the Marines, who are, uh, uh, but it just really weird, uncomfortable, grim stuff with torture scenes against this like you know, stereotypically hot movie CIA operative. Um, that, uh, it, anyway, so yeah, we didn't see that. Uh, all right, so uh, has uh, has has Square Enix or Crystal Dynamics, beyond saying, you know, we didn't mean to imply rape, has there been any other response? Like, have they said anything about how they might retool the game, or w- w- how have they been reacting to this controversy? Um, as far as I know, there hasn't been any kind of um, major major response from them other than sort of just walking back and, and falling on their... Um, falling back on their, their sort of talking points of um, of the ways that it can be interpreted in a sort of in an empowering way and, and in a in a way of a character sort of discovering herself and discovering her um, her capabilities and things like that. Uh, I seem to recall uh, Metroid Other M uh, was defended in much the same way. <laughs> Some of the stuff about Samus being all helpless and uh, discovering her power through the course of the game. And uh, lots of folks are very unhappy with that. Uh, so, Charles, they also, I think Square Enix is the, the trailer with the nuns being massacred by Agent 47 for the Hitman game. Is that right? The sexy nuns? That's Square Enix, too. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that probably is. And, and, and I'd actually forgotten sort of to mention that. But, again, that's, you know, another kind of in this, this storm of, of uh, gender issues that, that's come up recently. Yeah, Square Enix definitely stepped in it squarely, uh, I will say. No matter how you feel about the issue, uh, they managed to receive both barrels, as, as it were, uh, in terms of controversy. So, All right, so uh, there's our news of the week. 
let's transition now to some games of the week. McMaster, why don't you be our games of the week MC? Oh yeah, I'm gonna MC it up. Yep. Uh, all right. Uh, you know what? Uh, since I think one subject's gonna be interesting uh, between you and I, uh, I'm gonna say Charles, go. You go first this time. I, I want to hear what you got. All right. So. Uh my game of the week is uh, a little war game called Unity of Command. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm sorry um, to make this noise, but it, I'm so sick of hearing about how cool this game is when I have not played it. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's uh, you know it's just kind of quite a departure for me. I'm not, not a war gamer, and I'm I'm not really much of a strategy gamer. Uh, I, I think the closest I've come is is either. Uh, Advanced Wars, or, you know, I think I might have played one game of Shogun Total War and, and died immediately. Um, so now you're jumping into, like, a serious, hardcore, Eastern Front, hex-based war game. What's up with that? Um, but it's, you know, I, I I don't know how hardcore um, Unity of Command is. I, I don't have the, the frame of reference for it. But I just think it's, you know, playing through it, I, I read a lot about it, and, and I heard just accolades right, right and left. And it, it just does such a good job of teaching its concepts. Um, you know, even not, not a war game, just as, as in terms of any game design, um, it just does such a brilliant job of, of really having a lot of little interlocking pieces and, and forcing you to understand what they are. And it's, I, I think it's probably, again, I can't speak to, to, to as a, as a wargaming introduction, but I think it's just a great introduction to sort of strategy gaming and, and really teaching you how to, how to think about the, the tools that they've given you. Uh, it, it looks kind of like um, Panzer General or something like that, like a Panzer General, friendly Panzer General. Well, I think it's more uh, hardcore than Panzer General, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Like it, it, well, it has a lot of stuff about lines of supply and morale like, and uh, like East Front or West Front or whatever, like the old uh, SSI games. Or huh. uh, I, th- I, the, I think a closer analog, and I'm going to be splitting some more gaming hairs. There's a company named SSG who did, oh, rats, what was the name of their Omaha Beach, their uh, D-Day game? Anyway, there's a company called SSG that did kind of hardcore hex-based war games, but in a very friendly, uh, you know, you don't have to memorize combat result tables way. Uh, And I think Unity of Command is very similar to the kind of games that SSG used to do. I can't remember. There was one where even it showed you the die rolls, and uh, rats, I forget what it was. Oh, they have... um Kharkov, Carriers at War, Battle for, Battles in Italy, Battles in Normandy, across the... Is that the Dnieper? Anyway. Course in uh, Pocket? Course in Pocket. Very good, McMaster. I'm guessing okay. you, you either have an encyclopedic memory or you looked that up. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's all up here. Yeah. But yeah, I think Course in Pocket was their accessible one, and I think Unity of Command has a lot in common as far as the level at which it plays has a lot in common with, with Course in Pocket. Now, uh, so Charles, are you... Are you finding this, um, does this make you curious about harder core war games, or do you sort of feel like, yeah, this is a good level for me, I'm good? Um, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to can go deeper into the, the sort of war gaming uh, oeuvre. Uh, you know, it's I, I'm, not, I'm not done with Unity Command. I think a lot of people have mentioned that there isn't a ton of content there. There's only, you know, a... You know, maybe twenty scenarios or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's kept me busy for a while. Um, you know, just learning the, the systems and learning 
sort of what to expect from wargaming. Um, so I, I don't. I think it'll keep me busy for a while yet. Um, I, I'm definitely curious, but I, I doubt that I'll, I'll be going much deeper. Uh, I've heard good things about the AI in Unity of Command. Like it seems like it can really teach you the gameplay systems and provide a challenge. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, it's it definitely it's it's very good at um, at exploiting holes that that you leave, mm-hmm. um, and it's. Uh, I think maybe maybe it's not great at long term planning. Uh, I think it's it might be one of those things where you you have a certain turn limit to uh, to when you can uh, you have to beat the the mission in a certain number of turns. Right. And I don't think the game knows that. Um, I think if it did, it could probably uh, be a lot cheesier and, and sort of turtle itself up. Um. So you know I, I don't know it it's I don't know if it's necessarily acts the same way a human would, um, but it definitely acts in such a way that it's it's informative and it, and it really makes you work against it, right? Now, let's say, Charles, that I am a completely casual gamer like you. Let's say that I'm, I'm back in time, an earlier version of Charles Wheeler. I've only maybe played Advance Wars. What would you say to me to get me interested in Unity of Command? A hex-based... It is Eastern Front, right? Like, isn't it Russians versus Germans? Yeah, making, yeah. yeah. It's currently it's only it's only on the Eastern. So, front. so how are you going to make me interested in a hex-based game where I can't be America, and uh, there are no uh, graphics of airplanes and things blowing up, and uh, there's a lot of numbers? What are you going to say to get me on board? Uh, I, I actually think that from from somebody who's played something like Advance Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really accessible. I mean, it's it, it's a lot of the same. It feels kind of the same. It shows you, you know, when you're moving around in the map, it shows you where you're going and and how many kind of action points you have left. It uh, it's it's kind of friendly looking. It's got big heads and uh, <laughs> you know little little tank guys that that so you sort of slide around the board. Um, and it's it, it's not it's not an intimidating game to sit down and play with. I think it's. Uh, and it, I've, I've heard sort of stories about how war games are legendarily have bad UIs, and it really just gives you all the information you need to play. I think that you can, um, you don't need to consult any kind of outside source. You can just sit down and, and you can play it, and it'll teach you everything you need to. Right. No. Uh, and you don't see a lot of bobbleheaded Wehrmacht these days. I think. <laughs> no. I, I think, Not and often. I think also, you know, you either get to kill Nazis or you get to kill commies. <laughs> that's like a, so, it's a win-win yeah, situation lose, for any right? red-blooded yeah, exactly. American, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know what, Charles? That's just—I'd never thought of that as a selling point for the Eastern Front. Well played. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, another vote for Unity of Command. Uh, I forgot we've had other people talking about it, and a fellow named Tim James did a great games diary for us on Unity of Command uh, for for the front page of Quarter to Three. So. Yeah, I, you know, I probably should should at least mention that, uh, you know, his game diary is one of the many sources that slowly, slowly crept up my interest in the game. Um, and then, you know, a little while ago, I guess, was on sale, and I just sort of finally caved in, and, and I've been really happy with it. All right, good. Uh, McMaster, what level are you in Unity of Command? Uh, four. <laughs> All right. Why not? That's work to do. Uh <laughs> All right, MC McMaster, where are we going from there? Uh, why don't you go next? 
So I don't really know what my game of the week is because I've been playing a lot of stinkers lately. Uh, I say a lot of stinkers. Okay. Magic's not bad. I like Magic. Uh, you know what? I like Magic, too. I like that Planeswalkers uh, gimmick. Um, it's pretty crazy. It is pretty crazy. I really like the Avengers uh, tables for Pinball FX. I say really like I really like two of them. Um, you know what? I'm going to actually do something. I feel a little bad about this because I don't think I'm going to review this game because I played it for a bit and I was like, hey, this is not for me. I'm done with this. I give up on this. Uh, so uh, one of the games that came out this week uh, is called Quantum Conundru- Conundrum. Uh, and it's by a woman named, partly by, a woman named Kim Swift, who created a game when she was at the DigiPen program uh, called Narbuncular Drop, Narbuncular Drop, something like that. It's not a real word, but it had this idea where you, you solve puzzles by opening two different portals. And for whatever reason, you know, they, they made this, they released it, it got Valve's attention. Valve's like, hey, this is really cool. Why don't you guys come to work? come to Valve work for us. And I think Kim Swift was one of three people who made Narbarncular Drop, and they became internal employees at Valve, and they made a little game called Portal. Uh, Kim Swift, I think shortly after Portal 2, maybe shortly before it came out, uh, she decided, I'm leaving Valve, I'm going to go pursue other projects. And she went to work at a studio where they made a game that's very Portal-esque called Quantum Conundrum that just came out this week. So Quantum Conundrum uh, is the, the basic concept for this puzzle game, and it definitely owes a lot to the Portal 2 vibe, where you've just got rooms with puzzles, and a story is kind of being advanced as you solve the puzzles. But the basic conceit in Quantum Conundrum is that you have four powers that alter the physics in the room. And at first, you can only use one power at a time. You make things lighter, or you can pick them up when, as opposed to them being heavy. Eventually, you can make things heavier. Uh, and eventually, you fold these four powers together to solve little puzzles. So, it, it, you know, I'm playing through this. I'm going through the first sets of powers, and I'm doing a lot of stacking crates and pressing buttons. And there's nothing that's as clever as the, the portal concept that made Portal so refreshing. Uh, like Portal, the, the way that Valve makes their puzzles teach you the mechanics and the way that they fold in the writing for the story of GLaDOS and Shell, uh, all of that stuff was so good in Portal, and it really pulled me through all these puzzles. But I don't feel that there's any of that in Quantum Conundrum, based on playing for maybe two hours. Uh, I just feel like the attempts at humor are just really forced. Uh, it's trying to look quirky and cartoonish, but uh, it just looks like a, a rote, cutesy game. I don't like the voice work. I don't like this idea of the silent protagonist listening to this wacky uncle scientist talk at him. Uh, there's obviously, a, they're trying to put in a little cute sidekick named Ike, and I just find him ingratiating and I don't like him. Uh, so for whatever reason, I am completely turned off of Quantum Conundrum, and I think it's mainly that I just don't like puzzles. So I need something to basically wrap the puzzles in a story or a unique sense of humor, or you have to trick me to where I don't feel like I'm solving puzzles. Uh, but whatever it is that I need my puzzles wrapped in, I'm not getting in Quantum Conundrum. Uh, and that, that, that game is just completely bounced off of me, and I just I don't even think I feel like plowing through it to review it. I just think I'm done. So I feel bad, but for whatever reason, Quantum Conundrum, big thumbs down for me based on just playing a couple hours. 
I think it's probably for the best if you don't review that, Tom. <laughs> well, the thing is, yeah. I mean, it, the thing is, like, if I, I kind of feel, and maybe you guys could set me straight on this, I kind of feel like it would be okay for a guy to say, hey, I don't like puzzles, and so therefore I don't like this game, you know, here's why. And if you like puzzles and you read that review, you could think, well, hey, you know, I do like puzzles, so he's sort of explained the game. I'm still going to try it anyway. Like, I feel like that's kind of baggage that shouldn't necessarily disqualify me from reviewing it, but that I should be very upfront with. Um, I, I don't know. Do you guys feel like a guy who just concedes that he's not into puzzles? Do you feel a guy like that should should just not review Quantum? I, I, I think, to be clear, I don't think it's uh, I, not a criticism of your approach to reviewing it. No, no. But I think, that, I think you should not post that review on the Internet. <laughs> well, no, yeah. Honestly, if you don't like something, it's like if you were to review a sports game. I mean, you don't know anything about it. You're, you don't really, you know, you don't sport. We all know you don't sport. So, uh, yeah. No, I, 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 would, I don't know if I'd post it or not. Well, the thing is, I feel like I, I haven't, uh, to be fair, I haven't seen enough of it to really pass judgment on how the puzzles feel. You know, you get you eventually get four powers and they all start to interact. I haven't unlocked all that stuff yet, so I don't feel like I've seen the game proper yet. So if you're listening right. to me and you're listening to me say, ah, I don't like Quantum Conundrum, keep in mind that I, I haven't even experienced the full thing yet. So wherever it goes with the puzzles eventually is going to be something different from what I've experienced so far. Uh, but that's just the point I came to is I was thinking, well, I could push forward more and see all of the content or, you know, see what the game is getting at. But at this point, I'm just going to quit. And I would never review a game, for instance, before without seeing like what that would be like reviewing Portal, having only played with the orange Portal, (laughs) which you can't really do. You're not really going to understand what it's doing there. Uh, So, all right. So my game of the week, a game I don't like, and I'm afraid you will not be seeing a review from me for Quantum Conundrum. But as with any indie developer, I wish them the best of luck. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, we might as well get to it then. Uh, Charles, we should apologize to you in advance because you are not, uh, I think you're more, like, before I mentioned that you are not a normal person, you're a hardcore fighting fan. You know, there's two types of people in the world, hardcore fighting games fans and normal people. You now, Charles, are about to be on the normal people part of the equation for this next conversation, and I apologize for leaving you out there. Oh, yeah. No. Though it is kind of related to your game of the week, um, we uh, Tom and I have uh, been playing a lot of Age of Empires three. Oh it's, boy! It started. It's kind of, it started to become like Thunderdome. Um, <laughs> now, is that is, is that the Age of Empires three? That's not recent. No, 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 no. We, yeah, uh, we're we're getting in the wayback machine right now, Charles. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I went and. Uh, Found my copy and uh, we started playing on ensembles online. Wait a and, minute, isn't uh, that offline? Is that still going, McMaster? Wouldn't they have taken that down by now? You would think so, but no, no. Oddly enough, yeah. yeah well, Age of Empires three was not published by EA, obviously. <laughs> oh no, no, no. Yeah, Microsoft doesn't mind, I guess. Uh, but the uh, yeah, yeah, we've played. God, I would say what between twenty and thirty games now. And uh, actually, we're in the middle of one. Uh, we uh, we we had a game that kind of got out of control before the podcast started, and uh, we now have it paused. And by got uh, out of control, what what what? That's McMaster's <laughs> speak for. It's one that McMaster is actually probably going to win. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. If you let me go long enough, by God. <laughs> now, Matt, real, real quick, just to back up for a second, what got us? Do you remember what got us started on this? Like, do you remember? Are you, are you playing this instead of Age of Empires Online? Exactly, Charles. Charles, you just you just well, yeah. hit my point. Yeah. No, I mean, hey, I like Age of Empires Online. Uh, as do I. As do I. I think it's come a long way, right? Yeah, um, but there is something appealing about Age of Empires 3. Uh, there's something a little bit more robust about Age of Empires 3. Um, and that, that's part of why we got into Age of Empires 3, is we had been playing some Age of Empires online. We had the Microsoft some producer. Sins, yeah. Uh, yeah, and we had the Microsoft producer on the podcast talking about some of the changes. Um, but the, the, the feeling I get mostly from Age of Empires online is, yeah, this is fine, but it's no Age of Empires 3. Uh, so yeah. that was what I'm guessing motivated McMaster partly and me to jump back into this. Um. Yeah, so we uh, and we played uh, we played one one verse one verse one game that Tom did not enjoy very much. I don't think. <laughs> I, I actually I know you think that. Uh, how do you even say is Giaden Giaden? Uh, I don't know, but uh, I, I know you think we we ganged up on you, but he was like destroying me from the beginning of the game. Like he destroyed my first base pretty quick, and that's why I had that base right behind you. Right. No, one versus uh, three-way free-for-alls, I think, are a terrible way to play almost any game. <laughs> because it all is about who is the last guy to not get double-teamed. Uh, that, that tends to be the, the winner. But uh, regardless of that, so McMaster, what makes Age of Empires 3, why, is, why on earth have you played 20 to 30 matches of a game that is, what, seven, eight years old now? Well, it just has... Uh... Each race is so vastly different, and they added the whole home city with the like the cards thing, and uh, it's really cool. Uh, and it just it, it adds a whole lot of like different replay value to the game. That's, so explain uh, this home city thing because I think it's it's uh, if I were to recommend like any RTS as the best meta game like single player experience, like what's the best single player RTS I could play? I would pick Age of Empires 3 because of this home city concept. I feel that no other RTS has has created this sense of unlocking and building up yourself and almost RPG yeah. stuff as well as Age of Empires 3. So, McMaster, explain a little bit about how this works. Well, uh, what happens is, uh, well, first of all, you can get Age of Empires 3 still on Steam for like 20 or 30 bucks, the complete edition that has all the expansions. Um, but uh, in the game, uh, you choose a race. And uh, each race is actually pretty different. Now they'll have quite a few cards in sim- uh, you know, in common. But uh, and when you choose this race, you start. I, I don't know what level you start at in the single player game. But you either start at ten or the latest ones we did started at twenty. You get to choose that number of cards uh, to add to this deck that's already kind of there. And these cards do stuff like uh, summon troops for you, uh, give you a fort, which is huge, uh, give you bonuses to production. You know, uh, I don't know, Tom. What else? There's all sorts of stuff uh, you can do with them. Like they can give you resources. Draw off at your town hall um, but you have to build up experience to uh, earn these cards um, so once you're playing a game you're you're building experience the whole time and there are these little things called trade routes which you can set up which also give you constant experience uh, and you play these cards to give yourself kind of a boost and each person has a different deck and each time you level up with your city you get to buy new cards and build new decks and stuff like that what, so it's, it's, it's 
It's very much like everybody knows in RTSs uh, the typical resources. You know, you have food to train new dudes. Right. You have gold for research. You have wood for your buildings. All that's pretty straightforward. But what Age of Empires does is it adds a resource called experience points. And you get mm-hmm. these for killing other units uh, as well as the trade route McMaster mentioned. And these, this resource, whereas food unlocks villagers or units, wood unlocks buildings basically, this experience point resource unlocks these cards that McMaster has talked about. So it's like a whole new resource model and type of, not unit, because some of the cards are units, some of them are economic bonuses, some of them right. are global modifiers to your resource rate, or they'll add hit points uh, to buildings or units. Uh, they basically let you configure the game. And they do a great job, too, of folding into this historical feel that, the, that is created in Age of Empires 3. Uh, for instance, on some of the maps, you can recruit native units, yeah. and you can build a whole deck that's based around making the natives stronger, making it easier for you to recruit them. Uh, so you can build right. you can build a naval deck. You know, if you get yeah. on a map that has that has a lot of water, you can choose you choose your deck uh, in the middle of the game. You don't have to commit before yeah. you start the game. If you're ever playing a game with Tom Chick and he suggests you use your naval deck and you're playing against him, don't listen. Or maybe, <laughs> or maybe do listen because you will then trick me, and I'll think you won't use it. And yeah, see. And so uh, these, you, these decks, yeah. you build these decks in the course of a single online game. Or? It's very no. much, it's very much like Magic: The Gathering, Charles, in that you build a deck before you play. Like between matches, you, uh, you know, your deck can hold depending on the level of your city, but basically your deck can hold any twenty cards. And you're going to have way more than 20 once you've played for a while. Each time your city levels up, you can unlock new cards. But you you build a number of decks between matches. And then when you play a match, you know, you're earning your gold, your food, your wood, your experience points. When you get enough experience points to, to buy your first card, and they have a set rate, then you're going to choose what deck you're going to activate for that match. So for my city, I might have a natival deck. Uh, an economic, like a booming deck that helps my resource rate. I might have one that helps me rush early units out. I might have a deck that emphasizes cavalry. So when I start a game, I can sort of look at the lay of the land, and then when it comes time to pick my first card, I decide, okay, this is the deck that I've built that I'm going to use for this match. Um, no, it's, yeah, absolutely. So a couple of the... So, McMaster, what... Uh, I, I do have to tip my hat to you in that I'm so glad that I haven't discouraged you from this game. Uh, but but how, how would you characterize our first, like, 20, 30 games together? Um, let's see. I think out of the first 20 games, I won two. So that would, that sounds about right, yeah. And you're, you're a better man than me, McMaster, because if that had happened to me, I would have been sulking and going, I, I hate this game. I don't even want to play this oh, stupid game. Well, that's what Sarah said to me. She was like, how do you keep playing and losing to someone over and over again? It's like, I really, I don't, I don't mind it so much because as I play the game, I would rather play somebody that's good at it that beats the hell out of me than somebody that's, you know, whatever, or the AI because I learn something from each and, game. And isn't that a bit like fighting games, Charles? Like, don't you have to, when you play fighting games, don't you lose online a lot? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's definitely, you definitely lose probably more than you win, um, particularly in the beginning, but you don't necessarily learn something from losing. Um, you know, <laughs> Other than of, that you suck, maybe. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, one of the big problems is that, you know, there, there are things where 
you can what you can learn is is well that that seems to be you know invincible there's just nothing i can do about that um so yeah. there's there's definitely there's balance issues <laughs> yeah i mean there there's there are actual balance issues and they're just things that that you just can't that aren't very discoverable one of the things that i love about rts is that you don't get so much in fighting games is how much feedback there is after a match you know, is, oh, is, yeah. if you care enough to, you know, people in StarCraft II love watching replays, a really good RTS will have a strong replay feature, Age of Empires Three does, but also, like, looking at those graphs, you know, looking at your villager rate, or looking at how much you spent on units or buildings or tech upgrades versus the other player, uh, like, you can't, as far as I know, like, there's, there's not that kind of exhaustive data available after a fighting game match, uh... Yeah, I, I can't think of any. I mean, it's uh, I don't even know if there are any of the mainstream fighting games that, that allow you to sort of save a, a replay by default um, that you could, you know, potentially study what was going on. Right. Well, you um, can save replays in, like, Street Fighter Four. I know, at least. Yeah. So those are the, and that's an important part of, like, the tool for how you learn a game, and RTSs have always been pretty good about that. Uh, for the most part. So, McMaster, you're, you're, you're sucking it up. You're getting better, certainly. Uh, yeah. I, and, and another thing, too, about Age of Empires on Age of Empires 3 is that even when you lose, you get experience points. I mean, you're still oh, advancing, yeah. and that's a cru- for me, that's crucial to any game that has leveling up or advancing. Like, don't make me waste my time. And one way to do that is even when I lose, if you reward me somehow, if you let me advance somehow or un- get new more experience points or unlock a card or whatever, I don't feel like I'm wasting my time. Uh, so I love that Age of Empires 3 does that. And McMaster, your, your city is higher level than any of mine. Well, yeah, that's because you... Yeah, you've tried a bunch of different races. I stuck with the Britannia for the most part. That's true. I do have some alts going. Yeah, uh, uh, I just made a Dutch civilization. That's the the game we're in now. Are you playing the Iroquois? So the, yeah, there are Native American. There are three Native American civilizations that one of the expansions added, and I'm I'm the Iroquois, so that's one of them. Uh, you were the Dutch. They were in the core yeah. group. Uh, the Asian Dynasties expansion added three uh, Eastern cultures: uh, India, Japan, and China. Uh, yeah. And each civilization, especially the Native American and the Eastern civilizations, uh, has some unique tweak. So your unique tweak as the Dutch McMaster is they make money, they get banks. Uh, no oh, other yeah. race, I don't think, gets banks, and they're just they're just squat little sturdy buildings that sit there and crank out make gold money. for you. Yeah. Yep. A lot too. It's not like it's like two point seven five a second or something like that. So what are you going to do with all that gold, McMaster? Well, actually, the population you have to purchase in gold uh, with them as well. But you make artillery. All <laughs> oh, you need is a little wood and a little gold and and good times. And that's one of the things I also love about Age of Empire Age of Empires Three. Uh, anybody who's played Company of Heroes knows that there's a great shift somewhere around you know maybe eight ten minutes into the game where somebody brings out the first armored unit. You know, Company of Heroes starts with everybody's playing with infantry, and maybe somebody's got a machine gun, but you counter it with a sniper, and it's still an infantry-driven game. But then someone brings out the first tank, and you have this great, pardon my French, oh shit, moment, where suddenly the shape of the battlefield has changed. Uh, (laughs) And Age of Empires 3 does that beautifully with a couple of things. Oh, yeah. 
And one of those things is artillery. Uh, once you bring out cannons, holy cats, uh, a whole new set of rules are in effect. Uh, the other thing that it does that with is a, a fort. Uh, so, McMaster, uh, explain what what's the deal with a fort? Well, you can't just build a fort in this game. You have well, to. McMaster, actually... I've got a whole bunch of gold and wood. Why can't I just build a fort with my villagers? Well, you, know, you could put a bunch of towers together, I guess, but you can't call it a fort by God until you draw a card. Ah. And uh, yeah, they, there's a fort card. There actually some races have two. Uh, but, um, yeah, they, you get a fort card, and it usually drops in the third age. Uh, and also, doesn't age five sometimes refresh your picks? Like, if you actually get to age five. Holy anyway. cow, yeah, I don't uh, know, maybe. Um, I, I think that's happened for me before, like, one of the two times I ever hit age five. Um, but, yeah, you, uh, you drop this fort, and it has quite a bit of firepower, a lot of hit points, and uh, it can train uh, units. So it's kind of you have to really plan out where you're going to put it. You don't want Tom to catch your fort wagon and kill it, like happened to me last game. Yep. And, and the fort is a hugely powerful, basically it's a, it's a map control piece, like a playing piece, where you plop it down and you basically say, None shall pass. Like, it just sits there and shrugs off damage, and eventually the artillery can trump it. But it's a way to say, nobody's getting past here. Uh, and it's a, it's a game changer, just like when the first artillery rolls out. Uh, Which, you know, there's a lot of... There's actually quite a few interesting game changers. Like, uh, I know one of the first games that we played, it was at least in the first five or six, uh, my buildings uh, fell apart. And I was like, what the hell? And then eventually I realized that you had built a navy and had monitors, like, bombing me from offshore. So parts of, yeah, my fortress just fell over. I didn't really notice it because uh, I don't know why. But uh, And, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, any, uh, any monitor fan is a game changer. Yes, and any fan of Total Annihilation will know what a Big Bertha is, and a monitor is kind of like a Big Bertha. It's an artillery piece that can hit anywhere on the map. So if you let a player control the seas enough to where he can make both of his monitors, you're limited to two, that of course has some caveats, depending on the race and the cards you're using, but if you let any player get his two monitors out on the map, you are vulnerable. Uh, he can just stand back and even without line of sight, just lob powerful shots onto any place on the, on the map. So yeah, uh, another game changer. Uh, yeah, that, it's just ridiculous once those things start rolling. And if you build a naval deck, you can actually have more monitors. You can have three, and that's just that's ridiculous. That's if you if you build them up, you could probably destroy a fort with just one volley from three. Huh. All right, so after your game of the week, eight year an eight year old game. Uh, and I've actually been surprised. So when we play on Ensemble Online, I've been surprised that uh, you know there's there's consistently like still a thousand people playing this game. Yeah. Uh, you know it, it has a it's certainly got a community. Now I jumped into a random game with my level twenty city and was pitted against a guy with a level hundred nine city. <laughs> so mm. so it's got a community going. But just like Charles talked about in his Marvel vs. Capcom three game diary, this is another one of those things where it's it's a hardcore community. Like it's not going to be easy oh, no. to just jump in and get a game going. Uh, that's that's with someone else who's just started playing. Uh, that ship has sailed. 
Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So if you uh, you and a friend or someone you know wants to play Age of Empires 3, then yeah, it's a great game to get with someone else, but I would not go to Ensemble Online just looking for random fair games. Yeah. Uh, McMaster, how are you finding the skirmish games against just the, the straight-up AI? Um, I can beat hard just about every time, but Expert's a little out of control. And you don't get experience uh, points for that, do you? No, or you, no. You do, I, don't online. If you're playing the, just the, if you're playing offline, you get experience. But if you're playing oh, your sure. online city, you don't get experience for just skirmishing against the AI. Yeah. Right, but I, uh, Josh Weiser and I played a co-op versus yeah. the AI, yeah, co-op, and we got experience for that the other night. So you can do that. Right. All right. All right. So McMaster game of the week is uh, Age of Empires three. So we oh, have yes. we have two kind of nerdy historical <laughs> games. Age of Empires 3, Unity of Command, uh, going this week. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, Charles, anything coming out recently that you're looking forward to? Um, no, no, nothing. I'm not really very uh, forward-looking at the moment in terms of games. Are you, are you current-looking? Are you on the Diablo 3 bandwagon? Uh, no, I'm, I, I actually I bought Dragon's Dogma instead of Diablo 3. Um, ah, in, that's in a, in a fit of peak, I guess. <laughs> that's I, I support that fit of peak. I like yeah, I like Dragon's Dogma. Uh, and um, it, what else? So what else have you played lately? You got a little Dragon's Dogma going, a little Unity of Command, some revisiting Marvel vs. Capcom 3. Uh, yeah, and that's um, the 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 other thing that uh, I've, I've sort of put on hold for that is. Um, the Quest for Glory, Glory collection on Good Old Games. Man, yeah, we thought oh, we were oh, retro talking oh, about yeah. a 2005 game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, they, that was released relatively recently, and so I've, I've done what I've never been able to do before, which is take a character from the beginning of the first game to the end of the fifth one, um, importing him all the way through. So. Wait, you actually did that? Uh, I haven't yet. I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the second game, and I'm I'm planning on on finishing it up this time. Now and now, how is that holding up? Like that, that that game can't be good anymore. Um, it's well the um so the first one is is pretty pretty short. It's pretty minimal. It's a seer adventure game with some sort of combat tacked onto it. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't hold up all that well. Uh, the second game is actually a really interesting piece. Uh, it. It, it really expanded from the first game. It has this this big city to explore, and it's mostly mostly just empty corridors. But there's a lot of it. Um, it's it's very open ended. There's very little direction, and um, and you know things sort of happen at their own pace, regardless of what you do. Um, it really, I think, at the time was really really forward looking in, in a lot of its uh, a lot of what it was doing. Um, and and that second game actually had a a re-release in the last couple of years uh, that uh, I think AGD or something like that um, completely remade it with the with the blessing of the original creators. So that's uh, updated graphics and uh, and you know eliminated a lot of the user interface problems that the original one had. Do you know if that trend of being kind of ahead of its time continues through the rest of the games, the rest of the series? Um. Somewhat. I mean, it, they, they were always in a in a sort of interesting place where the having multiple ways to solve an individual puzzle 
was always a very big part of their design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that just by itself kind of opens up uh, a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities. Um, it, it was also sort of a, a blending of RPG combat and, statist- and stats with uh, with some sort of more adventure gameplay, which is something that you didn't really see a lot of uh, at the time either. Right. right. Uh, Charles, when can I play this on my iPhones? Um, probably <laughs> never. Rats. <laughs> All right. Um, but you know, it's the and and Quest for Glory two the. Uh, the one that was remade is actually the remake is free, so you can you can download it and, and putz around with uh, with a, a classic gaming gem for free. All right, good. All right, well, Charles, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us today. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, I encourage everyone to start at the beginning with the Marvel vs. Capcom three game diary, read them through. Uh, great stuff, and I, I love the way you ended it for us today. Thank you so much for doing that for us, Charles. Yeah, thank you. And uh, for listeners, join us next week. In the meantime, I'm going to try this again. Uh, like us on Twitter, donate to us on Facebook, and yes. follow us on PayPal. Keep <laughs> watching the skies. And we will see everyone here next week. There's a fire starting in my heart. Reaching a fever that's bringing me out the dark. Are you making fun of Adele? No, I like Adele. It's just fine. Uh, I was just thinking I'm going to be rolling in the deep with the new Diablo patch. Did you when is that out? About that? It's out no, yesterday. Oh, I didn't even know. Oh, the one that added the to the co- Charles once again. I'm sorry, we're excluding you. <laughs> but the one that added the uh, made the repair cost more expensive. That patch. Right, but also a lot of other stuff. Like, like Inferno uh, levels. Yes, and also, like, you get better items in Hell, uh, Acts 3 and 4, and Inferno. Inferno's less difficult. Yeah, McMaster, that, none of that helps me. Uh, yeah, I know. Helps me. Some of, us, some of us, McMaster, are still dinking around in nightmare mode, just so you know. Uh, you need to hurry up. I know.